All right, well, uh, we are, I want to welcome you. Uh, I'm Pastor Tommy, glad that you're here joining us today. Um, we're taking our time through chapter 9 of Romans uh, because there's a lot there to unpack, uh, particularly with this doctrine of election that we spent the last couple of weeks tackling. Uh, if you haven't already, I encourage you to listen to the last two sermons, which really put together the pieces of Romans 9 to help us understand what it means that God chooses some for faith and not others. Um, what, what we've talked about in part as we looked at uh, Romans 9, 1 through 13 was how election works. And the prime example there is of Jacob and Esau. And what we see is that God chose Jacob in the womb for faith, that that had nothing to do with anything that Jacob had done since he was just floating around in his mama's belly alongside his twin brother Esau. But God chose Jacob and not his brother Esau. And you see in verse 11 of chapter 9, God's purpose of election, uh, this is done so that the, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And so the doctrine of election helps us as Christians understand how much credit God gets for our salvation as Christians. The, the purpose of God's choosing of us, as we see there in verse 11, is so that we'd understand and know that our salvation is not a result of anything that we can do ourselves. How could Jacob do anything? He was in the womb. But it is completely and totally an act of pure grace and mercy by God, the God who calls us. Now, predestination presents all sorts of questions and challenges for us. I don't know if you remember, but when we started this whole sermon series, I mentioned that this second half of Romans has some of the most difficult passages of Scripture in the whole Bible to study and understand. And we're right in the thick of it right now, where some other parts of God's Word might be challenging morally for us as we hear God's standard of righteousness and, and, and we're called to live a certain way. That was a lot of our First Corinthians series. Other parts of Scripture may be challenging academically because they require a lot of historical context um, and knowledge of, of redemptive history. That was Nehemiah for us. Uh, Romans is challenging philosophically as we look at things that are not naturally intuitive and try to make sense of what Paul admits is mysterious. Things we can't necessarily put neatly into a box and then tie a bow around it. And so last week was an acknowledgement of this fact that as we try to understand and even pick apart God, it's important to know that God is infinite and that we are finite. There are some natural limitations there. That there would be things about God and how he has decided to run the world uh, which escape our grasp. And that doesn't mean that he's unjust. So how prideful and arrogant that, that would be to think that just because we can't understand why God does something that, that he's the one in the wrong but that there are practical limitations to our ability to understand and comprehend God, no matter how smart or how sharp we are. And it's very possible that we don't fully understand election, and that's okay. I want to kind of let you know that. It, it's okay because it's incredibly complicated in some senses, um, and, and it's okay because I'm not convinced that we completely need to fully understand it, nor, nor can we. But we should still wrestle with it, and we should strive to understand it, as with all biblically and spiritually challenging things. And there's going to be more on that later this morning. The, the main point from last week, as a response to those who might wonder, is it just or morally okay for God to choose some for salvation and not others? And what we see is that Paul's response to that question is yes, because God has every right to do with his creation as he desires. It's his creation. 
So he poses this rhetorical question, has the potter no right over the clay? And, and, and we might ask, well, what do you mean? Does that mean that God can do whatever he wants? And Paul's response, even uh, God's response, as we looked at the one-sided conversation with Job that he has, God doesn't have to answer to anyone or explain himself to anyone. That's what it means to be God. We must not make the mistake of putting God in our box and how we understand authority or power or fairness. And God says to Job, hey, as soon as you adorn yourself with glory and splendor and impeccable dignity, as soon as you can form mountains and tell the oceans where to start and stop, as soon as you can command the stars and the dawn, then I will explain myself to you. But until then, this is what God says to Job, remember that I am God and you are but a man. So for the proud, being humbled is not comfortable, uh, but there is also peace that comes with that ensuing humility. On our Monday night midweek this past week, one of the people in our group shared that there's peace in knowing that we don't have to be anything more than clay. Like, amen, the pressure is off, the expectation is set, and God, the, the potter and creator, is in sovereign control for his glory and for our good. So Paul finishes out this section in chapter 9, <clears throat> which bleeds into chapter 10 with some Old Testament references that reinforce this idea that election was always God's plan. This isn't some new Pauline concept. This isn't just Paul like cherry-picking some stories uh, like Jacob and Esau and use it to fill his own narrative. And one of the things that we see is that humility doesn't just allow us to experience this peace, but it, humility is also required for faith in God and for salvation. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the text. Father, we, just, um, we, we need your help this morning. We pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. God, the things that we're talking about in these truths are not naturally intuitive, and so we pray for your supernatural help in understanding your word, God. I pray that you would work through my words, Father. I pray that people would be able to just read and see your word and, and take you at it, Lord. God, we thank you that you have made your word possible for us this morning. And so, Lord, would you use this time for your glory uh, and for our good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 9, verse 25 is where we're going to begin. I encourage you to open up your Bibles. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath your chair. We will have other references to other scripture on the screen, but the main passage that we're looking at, we encourage you to just have open in front of you. So we're, we didn't make slides for those. Chapter 9, starting in verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So in these verses, Paul is citing four different passages of Scripture. There's two in Hosea. Uh, it's chapter 2, verse 23, and then chapter 1, verse 10. And then you've got two in Isaiah, and that's chapter 10, verses 22 through 23, and then chapter 1 and 9. Uh, for those of you who are just jotting that down real quickly. But later on in verse 33, he's also going to quote another passage from Isaiah, which we're going to get to in a minute. But first, what are these passages that Paul cites for us? Oh, there's a second glass of water. When did you do that? Wow. 
Did other people see that? Okay, everyone saw it except for me. Wow. I was praying. Thank you, Lord. Answers the prayer of my words and my heart. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> what are these passages? If you remember, Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament. He, he's one of the 12 minor prophets. And Hosea is writing during a time when Israel has gone completely off the rails. The kingdom has been split into two. There's a, a northern kingdom, which is where he's writing from. Now, there are times in, in uh, Israel's history where they are faithfully following God. The, the community is flourishing altogether. This is not one of them. They are walking in blatant disregard and disobedience of God. Uh, and, and they are in a place where they are just spiritually and practically, like, it, things are abysmal for the Jews. And it's this messy moment when God says to Hosea, Hosea, I want you to take a wife. And, and not just any wife, but I want you to take a wife who is going to be unfaithful to you. And then God tells him, when, when she is unfaithful, when she is discontent with you as her husband, when she goes to find other lovers, which she will, I want you to pursue her. I don't want you to divorce her. I don't want you to end the covenant that you have with her. Even though you will have every right to do so, I want you to redeem her. That is, pay any debts that she incurs in her adulterous and sinful pursuits so that you could restore that relationship back with her. It's pretty radical. And the reason that God is doing this is because he's using it as a very tangible object lesson for all of Israel who is watching. And what he's saying is, like the woman Hosea chooses to be his wife, Gomer, Israel has been unfaithful. They have not loved God, but they have given themselves over to love and to worship the pagan gods around them. And so Hosea and Gomer, uh, indeed, they get married. They have several uh, children, and God tells Hosea to give them very specific names which God would use to declare his judgment to all of Israel. So he tells Hosea to name one of their children Lo-Ruhamah, which means no love, no mercy, no compassion, because God says, I will no longer have love, mercy, or compassion on the people of Israel. And God tells them to name their other child Lo-Ami, which means not my people, because they are no longer his people. Now, this is a sobering moment in Scripture, and it's a realization that God's heart has been broken. It's, it, it reminds us that faith is not a matter of like practical affiliation with something nebulous, but it is a relationship with God that mirrors the intimacy of a marriage. But the book of Hosea doesn't end there, thankfully. The, the core message of Hosea is not that God loses faith with those who are unfaithful, that he quits on those who quit. It's quite actually the, the opposite, which is what Paul points out in Romans 9, verses 25 and 26. So look again, 25. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So Paul reminds us that in the book of Hosea, God flips the curse. In an incredible display of grace and mercy on Israel, he tells them, hey, remember those children that, that were named to communicate my judgment of you, Lo Ruhamah and Lo Ami? Well, I'm changing their names. No longer will they be called Lo-Ruhama or Lo-Ami, but they will be called uh, Ruhama and Ami, which is taking out the negative, which means my beloved and my people. 
What God wanted to communicate through the real-life example of Hosea and Gomer is that even though God has every right to end his covenant with his unfaithful people, even though he has every reason to walk away from this people who continue to turn their backs on God and keep running headlong in the other direction, and he would be very just in every way and every reason in doing so to end that covenant, God will not divorce his people. He will not quit on them, but he will remain faithful even when they are unfaithful. And we see this displayed in how Hosea goes to great lengths to maintain his covenant with his wife, Gomer. And God is saying, that's what I'm going to do with you, Israel. I will go to any length to maintain this covenant with you. So it's a powerful and a counterintuitive word from God which would reverberate through the generations and land on our ears here today, which is if you have been justified by your faith in Jesus, that the covenant in which you've entered into with God, which has been sealed and bound by the Holy Spirit, will not end. So long as you put your faith in the work of Christ, your lack of work or your sinful work will not be a means of God's divorce of you as his beloved. Because, as we saw earlier in Romans 9, our salvation is not based on our work, but based on the mercy of him who has called you. So even if you struggle to love him, even if you struggle to follow him, if you struggle to be obedient to him, as Hosea did not quit on Gomer, as God did not quit on his people, so he will not quit on you. That's the core message of Hosea. Now, why is Paul, I mean, it's beautiful, but why is Paul bringing it up here? At Mercy House, we haven't studied prophetic texts uh, in, in a few years, so this might be a little foreign to us, but here's a little helpful thing that's going to be on your screens. Here's a helpful way to understand how Old Testament prophecies work. There, there really are three, typically three layers of fulfillment. The first one is immediate and literal, uh, and, and that's concerning the history of Israel. The second is intermediate and spiritual, so that is more in relation to Christ and the church that we're all a part of today. And then the, there's a third layer of fulfillment where it's looking at the ultimate and the eternal, which is referring to God's final kingdom that we're going to live in one day with him. Now, you see a lot of this in the Bible. We actually explored a lot of it in Nehemiah with the building of God's temple, and we see that it meant something for the hearers then. So that's the immediate and literal in the history of Israel. It means something for us today as we're reading it, and it can be fulfilled today in our church. So that's the intermediate and the spiritual in light of the gospel and for the church. And it will have a final and ultimate fulfillment in God's eternal kingdom. So the immediate and the literal, stay with me here, the immediate and the literal gets played out in the book of Hosea. God is speaking directly to Israel. He will maintain his faithfulness even as they endure the consequences of their sin and their waywardness, um, and he does indeed restore them within the book of Hosea. But Paul is pointing out a second layer of fulfillment through Christ and the church. He's pointing out that when God said, those who are not loved will become my beloved, and those who are not my people will become a me, or my people, he's not just talking about changing the name of some kids thousands of years ago. And he's also not just talking about the Israelites who lived during Hosea's time. God was making a lasting decoration of how his family operated beyond that slice of time. One that reached Paul in the early church, and one that reaches us here today that God's family would be built 
and it would include people who are not God's people. So if, if you are not ethnically Jewish, like, like me, uh, that is talking about us. You and I are low ami. We are not God's people. We are Gentiles. We are not Jewish. Paul puts it like this to the Ephesians. This is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So that's what it means to be low ami to be separated, to be alienated, to be strangers. But then look at the flip of the curse just later on in this chapter. It's just like Hosea. As you, as you go down, look at verse 17. He says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, this is talking about Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, hold on to that thought and look back at our passage for this morning and see how similar it is to what God is saying in, in Hosea. So Hosea, I'm sorry, this is Romans chapter 9, verse 25, and indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the place where, the, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And so remember, the larger conversation in chapter 9 is about election. What Paul is revealing is that God's election of his people, it extends beyond the nation of Israel. Now, we might take that for granted today, since it's a bit implied, if most of us aren't ethnically Jewish, then, then we're kind of experiencing this right now, but this would have been pretty mind-blowing for the Christians in Rome. Remember, you've got a church full of Jewish converts on one side, you've got Gentile converts on the other. Paul does take time to address each in his letter to them. He spends some time humbling them in their respective origins, which would lead one to believe that there, there might have been some sort of rift between these two groups. And Paul addresses this in a couple of ways in these verses, and, and here's the first way that he does it, that incorporating Gentiles, the non-Jews, the low ami, into God's family, the ami, was always a part of the plan before Jesus even came into the world. You can imagine a prideful line of conversation happening that would go maybe something like this. I, I am special as a Jew because I, I am obedient and I follow God. And God says earlier in chapter 9, well, it's not up to you and your actions because I chose you before you were born. And then they would respond maybe something like this. Well, maybe I was chosen, but I am descended from the nation of Israel. And here Paul is reminding them, yes, but God chooses people outside of the nation of Israel as well. See, there's just like no place for pride in God's family. There's nothing to be able to puff our chests up about because it's all about God's grace and his mercy toward us, not anything that we can do. In these two Hosea references, Paul is helping us see the incredible inclusion of Gentiles into God's family. But in contrast, what we see in the next two references from Isaiah is him communicating a reduction of some people within Israel from God's eternal family. Look at verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. 
For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is a revelation that, that shows us that not only is God including Gentiles into his people and predestining them for adoption into his family, um, but even within God's family, there is further refinement and selection that is based in faith of God and in God. Remember the example of Isaac in Romans 9, verse 6, that, that not all who descend from Israel, the, the lineage and line of Abraham, belong to Israel. Only a remnant of them would be saved, just like Isaiah says. And unless God chose some before they were born to be faithful to him, that their fate as a nation would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, a place that we see in Genesis 18 and 19 that is so full of sin that it's completely empty of people who put their faith in God that it was wiped out in God's righteous judgment. Now, thankfully, this didn't happen because there was always a faithful remnant within the nation of Israel. That's why Israel was not ever just blown off of the map. And based on chapter 9, this is not, wow, thank God we always had some sensible forefathers who maintained their faith in God. No, as, 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 as though we were to give credit to the remnant. But even Isaiah here says there in verse 29, this is originally Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So God preserved the nation by choosing some in the womb for faith, like Jacob, those who would be sovereignly compelled to faith and obedience to God and carry on the lasting legacy of faith all the way to us here today. Now, what do we make of all of this? Paul asks the same question, so let's continue and see. Verse 30, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did so, I'm sorry, they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul takes a moment to kind of wrap it all up together by asking, what should we take away from all of this? And, and he lays it out fairly clearly for us. Uh, there are two things to take away. Number one, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. So th this is talking about people who honestly didn't want anything to do with God. They actually attained righteousness through faith. And the second thing he wants to take away is that Israel, who actually pursued righteousness through the law, they failed to attain that righteousness. Why? It wasn't because there was something wrong with the law. Paul talks about this in Romans 7, but because they didn't pursue the law in faith. They saw the law as a means of salvation in and of itself, something that they could work for and accomplish by their own power. Here's what Paul is trying um, to say over and over again, the point that he's trying to make throughout the book of Romans, that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone and not by works. And Israel's greatest flaw was being too prideful to receive this. Paul says in verse 32 that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. 
The prophetic word in uh, verse 33 is from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, which is God declaring that Jesus would be this stumbling block, this rock of offense. Well, how would he be a stumbling block? Because he would usher in the gospel, which would freely justify people and make sinners righteous based on grace through faith and not by works. And for those who felt like they could earn it, that they must earn their righteousness, this just did not compute in their brains, and they got stuck. They got stuck. We see glimpses of this all the time. I think we all have someone in our lives, maybe, uh, and they are just terrible at receiving gifts. Can you think of that person? Like, they visibly and viscerally struggle when receiving anything wrapped and with a bow on top. Like, for them, it feels morally wrong to receive something without reason or payment. I remember I tried to give a gift to my grandmother one time. I think it was like seven or eight. I don't remember what the gift was. All I remember is that my mother put up the biggest stink and fit about it. Like her framework and her disposition could not allow a child to bless her with a gift. Now, eventually, I was able to reason with her, as a seven-year-old does, and, and she took it home with her, which was great. And later on, I realized that she went in and hid a $20 bill under my pillow at home, right? The same grace that was received by Gentiles to make them righteous with the righteousness that the Jews wanted so desperately to have, when the Jews were offered that same grace as a gift, they could not receive it. It, it was a stumbling stone for them. They, they needed to like stick a $20 bill somewhere in there to be like, oh, but let me just put that in there and then I'll take it. God's like, no, that is not how the gospel works. The Jews relied on their own religion, their own ability to follow the law and be obedient and to earn their salvation, and they tripped over grace. That's what Paul is talking about here. They're not the only ones to do this. This is why Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 15, Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Children don't trip over grace. They are born humble and needy. They have no problem receiving gifts. Have you ever heard a kid say, oh no, you really shouldn't have. You shouldn't have got me this Lego set. Oh, I, can't, I just can't, Dad. Like, truly, please take it back. Like, no, I can't. No, that would be weird if a kid did that. Kids struggle on the other end of the spectrum with ingratitude and brattiness, which is a whole nother sermon. But what Jesus is explaining is that in order to experience salvation, one must receive it like a child receives a gift. Not with our hands up, waving, saying, no, no, no way, no, I can't, I can't receive that. Or worse, saying something like, okay, you, you pay for lunch this time, I'll get you next time, okay? So this is not a gift, I'm, I'm going to pay you back. That is not how the gospel is received. It is to be received like a child receiving an ice cream bar. And they say, okay and they snag it and go eat it. That's how we receive the gospel. This is, I think, for those in the room who are not part of God's family. If you're in the category of strangers and alienated from God, the low and me, the not my people, God is offering you a place among his saints to become citizens of God's kingdom, and even more than citizens, to be adopted as a beloved son or daughter. And that offer is absolutely free. You cannot work for it. You can't afford to work for it. Not in a hundred lifetimes of working and trying. So I would encourage you, exhort you to not be like those who can't receive gifts, 
whose pride prevents them from being blessed by God. Don't trip over grace, my friend. Receive Christ by faith and be justified and made right with Christ. If that's something that you want to do this morning, I'm going to be standing right down front at the end of this sermon. I want to encourage you to come on down so that I could pray for you. And there's nothing magical about coming down front. People might wonder, well, why do people do that? Well, because it places you in a position of humility that is required to receive Christ. It's you saying, I need Jesus. And it's you physically taking steps of faith to be in a posture of humility to be able to receive Christ to declare that I, I need this, I want this at, at any and all costs. I'm not afraid to say it. I'm not concerned with who sees me. God, give me this salvation, please. And if that's you, it's here for you. So I want to encourage you to make that known publicly if that's a decision that you want to make today. Let's read these last verses and finish out for the morning. At the beginning of chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul begins chapter 10 the same way that he began chapter 9, with a reflection on the state of his fellow ethnic brothers and sisters, and where in chapter 9, he mourned their lack of faith, going so far as to say that he wishes, that he could wish that he could trade places with those who were cut off from Christ and go to hell in their place so they would be able to know Jesus. And here in chapter 10, it's a bit more hopeful. He's saying that it is his desire, his heart's desire that they, this is the the ethnic Jews who have stumbled over grace, the grace of the gospel, it's it's his heart's desire that they would be saved. This is Paul saying, it is not over yet. If there's still breath in their lungs, if the clocks are still ticking, and if Jesus is not at the threshing floor, then there's still time for them to come to faith. And to that end, it's not only Paul's desire that they come to faith, he's actively praying that it would happen. Now, how does this fit with election? Caitlin and I were just talking about this on the way to church this morning. How can we understand election that God chooses? But then here Paul is saying, I am actively praying for these people. We can pause here to remember the people in our lives who don't know Christ, who are strangers, who are alienated, who are cut off, from God, who are still the low ami, not God's people. Mature believers are not called to just stomach that, as if it's something to get over, that some of our loved ones are going to die in eternal death. That is not what Paul's doctrine of election is leading him to do. He doesn't say, well, God chooses, and it's by no work of our own, so we should just sit down, shut up, and be okay with whoever God lets into his kingdom and who he doesn't. The truth of God's election doesn't lead Paul to fatalism, a belief that everything is predetermined and inevitable anyway, which means there's no hope. It actually leads Paul to the opposite. Instead of simply relying, and I'm sorry, instead of simply resigning all care and love for others over to God's sovereignty, what Paul does is he prays and he hopes that the immeasurable riches of God's grace would be displayed in God's sovereignty. 
What do I mean by that? He's, he's praying for his brothers and sisters. He's, he's banking on God to be more gracious than Paul can even imagine. In other words, he doesn't stay in chapter 9. He's praying to a God who he believes can bring more people from death to life. A God who can bring more aliens and make them citizens of heaven. More strangers and make them sons and daughters of God. Mercy House, don't let the doctrine of election make you throw your hands up in defeat. But throw your hands up in prayer to God that God's almighty arm of salvation would be big enough and strong enough to save those in your life that you couldn't even imagine coming to faith. I said it before and I'll say it again. We don't know who the Jacobs and the Esau's are. We don't know who has been chosen for faith and who has not. Understanding that God does choose, it does not change our responsibility to pray for those who don't know Christ and to preach the gospel to them. It actually informs that responsibility further. Paul hopes that all his brothers and sisters will be saved. He prays that that will happen. And then he gives us his pastoral insight into their situation. Look what he says, verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul admits that his people are a zealous people for God. In other words, God is really important to them. They gave God lots of their time, lots of their energy, lots of their resources. They're passionate for God. The problem is, is that zeal for God does not make you a child of God. Their zeal could have been a strength, but it was misinformed. Another way to put it is, it doesn't matter how fast your race car is, or how powerful it is, or how well it handles, if it's facing the wrong way on the track, it's not going to finish the race. Paul's Jewish contemporaries drove fast cars in the wrong direction. They had zeal, but they didn't have knowledge. They were ignorant to how God's righteousness worked, and instead of receiving it freely as a gracious gift from God through their faith in Him, they continued in wanting to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to the righteousness of God. This type of misguided zeal exists even within the church as well. This is a huge reason why doctrine and theology matters. This is why God has given you his word to be able to provide you with capital T truth and practical direction for your life. This is why God has given you the church to be a part of and has provided you with people like myself who it's my job to, to do everything in my power to give you sound biblical teaching and give you good godly counsel for how to live life. The reason is because zealous prideful people who are misinformed can get lost quick. They can. There are many people I have met with in my life and in pastoral ministry. They are very passionate. They are filled with energy. They are incredibly confident in what is right or what is wrong, but they are misguided. And it's often that their passion and their zeal is based on their personal experience or their personal epiphanies or their personal feelings, and it is not informed by God's word. That's a problem. While some of us are driving fast cars and going in the wrong direction, others of us might be idling at the starting line. 
When we talk about doctrine and theology, some of us might say, to, and they have said to me, that's a little bit too heady, it's a little bit too complicated, like let's just have faith like a child. Which, absolutely, let's receive Christ like children. That's what Jesus is talking about in Mark 10:5. But let's grow and mature into spiritual adulthood, eating spiritual solid food. So having childlike faith should never be an excuse to remain ignorant in our grasp of God's word or the gospel. Yes, God is unsearchable. He is infinite, but he still invites us to know him better and to grow in our understanding of him. Look, math is a broad field. It is complex. No one, I don't think anyone in this room is able to master math, like all of math. How could we? But we still teach our children basic arithmetic, and then algebra, and then pre-calc, and then calculus, and not because the end goal is that they would have complete and total mastery over math, but that because there is inherent value, even beauty, in the process of learning what we can. This is coming from someone who hated math in school. Be informed, brothers and sisters, not according to your professors, primarily, not according to NPR or to TikTok or wherever you get your news, not according to your feelings or your thoughts, not even by me as a person. Be informed by the Word of God, which I am laboring to make very plain and clear to you on a Sunday morning. Do not be ignorant of the things of God. If you find yourself overwhelmed at how much there is to learn about God because it is vast, if you find yourself intimidated by the doctrine of predestination, hear, hear the simple invitation to simply just know God better. That's what God is inviting you to do. That, that's what all of this learning is about. And, and its endeavor has immediate blessings and also eternal fruit. Thomas Aquinas is quoted in saying this. He says, all true theology teaches us God, is taught by God, and leads us to God. That is the goal of all godly biblical teaching. And it is the goal of all godly biblical learning as well. So let me speak to the other side of the coin for a moment. If you are someone who considers yourself to have a lot of zeal, okay, you're a very passionate person, lots of strong opinions. You might be considered a little fiery. If God's word isn't a part of your regular diet, and if a relationship with God is not the highest priority in your life, I would encourage you to pump the brakes, brother or sister, to slow down. For the sake of your soul, for the sake of those who are around you, be careful that you do not become like one who has a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Take the time to be informed by God's word, to align yourself with the finish line, lest you veer off course and make a wreck of your faith. That's 1 Timothy 1.19. This is what happened to Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters. Let's look at these last verses, and we'll close out. Verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes.
Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters who tripped over grace and stumbled over Christ ultimately were not able to submit to God. They held on to the law as the means of their salvation. Mercy House, this is in part why we pray regularly that God would open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive his word. The reason is because Paul's contemporaries were not uneducated or uninformed. They had access to the same Bible as Paul. They had the same teachers as Paul. They were raised with the same traditions as Paul. And so what separated Paul from his brothers and his sisters? If you've been paying attention and following along, absolutely nothing that Paul did. God chose Paul. God knocked Paul literally off his horse while he was on his way to zealously persecute members of the early church. And Jesus himself appeared and called Paul to faith. And Paul responded in the only way that one can, given those circumstances, he submitted to the righteousness of God. Everything he thought he knew about the law, every bone in his body that prided itself in being able to uphold the law was brought to nothing. Why? Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for, uh, the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There is no doubt an incredible humility in Paul as he knows that the only thing that's separating him from his brothers and sisters who are driving fast cars in the wrong direction is the grace of God. And the grace of God has brought him to this conclusion regarding the law that had enslaved him for so long. And that is that the the law always pointed to Jesus. The purpose of God's commandments is found in Jesus to show us how sinful we are as humans and also how perfect he is as our Savior. The law doesn't just point to Jesus. It is completed and perfected in Jesus. He lived the law perfectly, and not just through his actions, but in his heart and his his intentions, his will, and even in his death. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. When we take communion, we remember that this was the plan from the very beginning. Remember that prophecy in Isaiah. This is verse 29. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Yes, there was an immediate and literal fulfillment. God would provide chosen generations to carry on that legacy of faith, but the greater fulfillment is in Christ himself. If the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, one who would descend from Abraham, one who would follow the law perfectly, not breaking God's heart in faithlessness, but one who would be the fulfillment of God's faithfulness toward us, the unfaithful and the wayward gomers that we are. Yes, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we would become like Sodom and Gomorrah, righteously condemned in our sin to be forever separated from God. But Christ, the promised Messiah, the son of David, the author and the finisher of our faith, was given to us. This is what we remember when we take communion. And the verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We remember that Hosea was prophesying that one day people who were not loved by God, who were not God's people, strangers, alienated, cut off, would become Ami, would become God's people. Communion reminds us that, that this day has come. This has been made possible through Jesus' death on the cross, and it's fulfilled in those of us who believe and who have been grafted into the family of God. As we take communion this morning, let's give thanks to God for this incredible reality that we get to live out. And for those who have made a decision this morning, who, who want to place their faith in Christ, if this is something you've never done before, I'm going to be standing right here as others come down to take communion, and I would love to pray for you this morning. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly thankful for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you have had it in your heart as um, a gracious, loving, compassionate Father to invite more people into your family. And God, we confess that we don't always perfectly understand how this works, even as we talk about election and your process of salvation, and some of these things are too mysterious for us, Lord, but we do know, God, that this is through faith. It's not by our works, God, that this has been a plan that you've had from the very beginning. Lord, I pray for those who have not put their faith in you, and I pray, God, that your word would be just sinking deep and cutting deep into their hearts this morning, and that they would be compelled to respond, God. And Father, I pray, yeah, for the rest of us, um, as we do know you, as we have been walking in faith, that this would encourage us, Lord, and to know that you are our Father, that you care for us, that you walk with us through each of these seasons, Lord. God, I thank you for your word that has been given to us. Lord, I pray that it would not return void to you. We thank you for your promise that it wouldn't. Um, and so we pray for those this morning who, um, yeah, are in a difficult, challenging place, Father. And we pray that your word would minister to them. Lord, we love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.